We stand for the reading of God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my lips, my mouth, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. The word of the Lord. If you have your Bible, do keep it open. Uh, I'm going to actually read until uh, through verse 13. Through pondering the passage this week, I thought it very short-sighted to break it up as I did, but the worship guides were run before the team went to India. So I'm going to finish uh, 9 through 13. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes, ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, The holy seed is its stump. We've started a new sermon series for Advent, and it focuses on theophanies in the Old Testament. Now, as a reminder, what do we do during Advent? Well, we go back to the Old Testament, and we ask, what was it like for the Old Testament saints to look forward to the coming of the Messiah? How were they waiting? How were they waiting? And what do we learn from their waiting? Then we fast forward to where we are on the other side of the first coming of the king, waiting for the second coming of the king, and asking if our waiting is faithful, if our waiting is informed by what's put forward to us in Scripture. Last week we considered uh, the appearance of the fourth man in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and today we're considering the vision that Isaiah has of God filling the temple with his glory. And the heart of our passage today comes in verse 5. Isaiah declares upon seeing this vision, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Having seen God in His holiness, Isaiah is left with a perplexing question. How shall I be made clean? And it's the same question for the people. How shall the people be made clean? And it's the same question for us. How shall we be made clean? 
This is the question that is the heart of our consideration today and what we learn from uh, this theophany. And to break it down, we can move through the passage pretty simply and consider Isaiah's vision, and then Isaiah's problem, and then Isaiah's salvation. So one will be Isaiah's vision, two will be Isaiah's problem, and then lastly, Isaiah's salvation. So what do we learn from the vision itself? Now, even as it begins in verse 1, Isaiah offers to you a historical marker that is significant. Anytime you read some kind of reference to what's going on in the context, it helps you to understand the passage and what's happening. So in verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, you might say, well, who is King Uzziah? Why does he matter? Uzziah is a pretty important figure in the history of Israel. What's happening is the Assyrian Empire is on uh, the, the rise. In fact, they're knocking down kingdoms and uh, smaller empires left and right. And Israel sees that threat looming on the horizon. But King Uzziah was a very strong and uh, a smart king. He was very tactful. He protected Israel during his reign so that Israel enjoyed a long period of prosperity And they thought they were buffered from Assyria. And so Israel went through a phase where they chose prosperity and safety and security rather than righteousness. Because Uzziah was by no measure a righteous king. So imagine being a people that choose prosperity and security and safety rather than valuing righteousness in their king. Now by placing themselves in this situation things are going to unravel in God's grace because God is going to have to punish their sin in order to wake them up, in order to bring them to account. And so Uzziah is a very proud and arrogant king. At some point, you can go and read his story in 2 Chronicles 26. Uzziah at one point says, you know, I don't know why I need a priesthood. Walks into the temple and he pretends or acts as if he's going to burn incense. The priesthood prevents him, but one of the reasons they're actually successful in preventing him is God afflicts him with leprosy in the moment so that his skin turns white even as he's approaching something that is forbidden to him. For 10 years, he's going to suffer with leprosy, and his son is going to have to be co-regent with him. His name is Jothan, but Jothan is not a strong king. And so the people start to get worried and start to see things going south. Their security is fading away. Their safety is fading away. And they know that they're going to be under the thumb of Assyria soon. And that comes even more to the fore because Jothan, who doesn't last very long, has a son named Ahaz. And Ahaz is going to completely sell out to the Assyrians. So this vision is occurring in a time in Israel's history where Israel was enjoying being rich and fat and happy. They didn't care about righteousness, but they got what they wanted. And they moved away from God during this period And then uh, Isaiah comes on the scene speaking of this vision and beginning uh, the beginning of his prophetic ministry. He says, you better listen. Uzziah is is not alive anymore. Assyria is about to rain down on you. You are standing at a fork in the road. And you better decide whether you're going to go left, right, and move, double down on your sin, and Assyria is going to move in, or you're going to turn right and repent of your sin and move toward God. This is the fork in the road that occurs as Israel is being called or charged with, with his ministry. And so uh, in the midst of uh, this historical situation, this vision occurs. And as uh, Isaiah is transported, so to speak, into the temple, 
He's given a vision of God who is enshrouded in the inner temple by the protection or the covering of the seraphim, these supernatural beings that have three sets of wings. One set of wing covers their eyes so they don't look on the glory of God directly. One set of wings covers their feet because in the ancient world, to show one's feet to someone who was rude. And with a third set, they fly. And they attend to God and are singing His glory, right? In verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, in Hebrew, realize that to say the same word three times is to give it really profound emphasis. Right? So the, what's, being, uh, what's being emphasized here is the notion of God's holiness. What's being communicated is that it's not only important to know God's essence, but also His character. Right? That He is holy in nature. That He's beyond our capacity in such a degree that He's worthy of all worship and honor and reverence. This is the holiness of God. And holiness is something that's very important in Isaiah. Isaiah speaks of it very frequently. It's important in the Old Testament. You know, over 800 times the Old Testament will speak of God's holiness. And at the same time, I think we have to be uh, frank that holiness is one of the characteristics of God that we have most abandoned. Right? We, we have a tendency to move toward God and to think, it's his job to worship us rather than it's our job to worship him. But if he is truly holy, truly, and I think, I think this is a very deep problem. Um, I didn't even bring it in as an illustration, but there's some fascinating studies that were coming out and being written about this week on, on the unprecedented nature of loneliness in our culture. The more people than ever uh, would say that they are lonely, that alcohol addiction and addiction to opiates is so dramatically on the rise, basically the federal government doesn't know what to do. And uh, the suicide rate is at unprecedented levels. I think, uh, I hate to, I think 45,000 now a year uh, will, will take their life. I might be misquoting that. So don't take it with a grain of salt. But you get this picture of, of a moroseness that falls upon the nation. And I think at least a, a significant part of that morosis is a, is a people who not only are walking away from God, but even a people who give lip service to God, but who don't take his holiness seriously. But now realize what happens when you do that is if God isn't holy, then there's nothing that defines truth and beauty and goodness and joy and righteousness outside of ourselves. And when you move to a place where all of those things have to be divided, uh, have to be defined simply by our own resources, when you start to actually think about that, that becomes a very hopeless place, right? That the greatest good you can imagine is what a human can accomplish. That the greatest truth or the greatest beauty is simply something that we can forge. If there isn't something that is supreme that defines those things from outside of ourselves, well, goodness, right? You can start to think, why would, why would I continue to press forward? What really am I looking forward to? What am I hoping upon if I have forsaken, to some degree, the holiness of God? But this is a great challenge for us, in part because it's such a part of our fallen state that we have such a difficult time assigning worth to something in the right way. I certainly experienced this when I started shopping for an engagement ring to get married uh, to Jennifer, as opposed to my other wives. (laughs) So... That was a joke if you, don't, if you don't want to start any rumors. So uh, I, would, I went to the jewelers and was, began to be educated. But I just thought a diamond is a diamond. And if you show me a big diamond, 
the bigger the diamond, the higher the value. So I would have been happy to, okay, what's the biggest diamond you can give me for such and such an amount of money? Well, the jewelers essentially laughed, right, and could have easily taken advantage of me, but began to educate me. Well, there are other factors that you might want to consider. As you look at this big diamond that they will sell me to for a very cheap price, right, it's as, uh, you know, it looks like a, it's about as clear as a glass of milk. And it's not really white, it's more yellow. And it has a big crack running down the center. And you learn about these different qualities of diamond, cut and clarity and uh, carrot and... There's a fourth one I don't even remember. But these qualities, right, all of them go into establishing the value of the diamond. But I was a fool because I would have said the biggest diamond is worth the most. They might have said, actually, you're very much mistaken. This small diamond is worth far, oh, cut, right? It's the fourth C. So how it's cut and how it refracts the light, right? All of these things go into valuing the diamond. But we are a lot like that in which we enter the world and just value things incorrectly. We value things inappropriately. How many of you would be a little bit more of a clempt, a little bit shorter of breath, a little bit heart more racing if you bumped into someone who is a star? So you ran into a movie star that you respect Right? You're just down at a restaurant and find yourself sitting next to someone famous and you think, my goodness. Or you're a big sports fan right? and you bump into your favorite quarterback. You would be taken aback. You would grab your phone to take a picture. You would talk to them. You would want to ask certain questions if you could even get your senses about you. All of this would be going on. And yet, how often do we drag ourselves in here to worship and say... We're actually in the presence of the one true, unique, holy God. And our pulse goes down rather than up. We don't get excited. Some of you, and more and more of you I've noticed, will even scroll your phones during the service as if this was somehow honoring to the holiness of God. As if He could be, uh, as if he could be bothered with the full attention of your mind and your heart during worship. Right? Please, let's not pretend that we take God's holiness seriously if that's what we're doing when we gather to worship Him. In fact, we're saying, you're not worthy of my time. You're not worthy of my energy. I would rather locate it elsewhere. Well, this is where Isaiah understands God's holiness better than we do because if you, don't, if you do something of that nature, right, or don't find yourself getting excited or inspired or even working in that direction about the holiness of God, then you have to realize that Isaiah had the right response. Right? There should be some level of fear there. There should be some level of woe is me. See, Isaiah has this vision of the holiness of God, and he has two responses. And both responses have to go hand in hand. Right? If you go down with just one response, it will be bad if it's not balanced by the other response. So what are the responses? Well, the first comes in Isaiah's problem, right? our second point. So Isaiah's first response to this glorious vision of the holiness of God is what? Woe is me. Right? Now, that language is not messing around. Um, woe is me is what you would say at a, at a death scene. right? So... Um, the, what's going on here, it's almost a Hebrew euphemism in the sense that if you were watching a movie, right, and you've got some character who's trying to do something like defuse a bomb, 
And they're flashing back and forth between the character and the countdown on the bomb. And the, the countdown hits zero. And it does a lash, last pan back to the, to the character. And he says something like, uh, oh no, or Lord have mercy, or some, some explicative, right? What's, what it's communicating to you, the viewer, is that, oh, he didn't make it. This person's time is up, right? That's what woe is me means. What Isaiah is saying is it's, it's the last utterance you would issue before you died. Isaiah believes that he's about to die for seeing the glory of God, and he says, woe is me. And in part, that's a right response, right? but it's not the full response, and Isaiah hasn't pictured yet or come to the awareness yet that just because God is holy doesn't mean he can forgive. And that, of course, will be the, the second response. But first, we have this notion of Isaiah realizing that he is utterly unclean before holiness and as a result, desperately needs God to do something on his behalf. If you look at verse 5, For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the King, the Lord of hosts, and his reaction is, My lips are unclean, and the lips of the people are unclean. Well, what's the deal with lips? Right? Why are lips unclean? Well, the notion is, as uh, Jesus will put it in Matthew 15, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. The notion is that the language that comes out of your mouth, particularly that language when you feel safe and secure and you don't think anyone's listening or you're with someone, you don't care what they think, they know, you, know, you know they'll accept you for whatever, that kind of language, what does it reveal about what's really and truly in your heart? The um, Judaism and then Christianity always recognized that uh, language, the tongue, the mouth, the lips were one of the hardest parts of the body to control. James will say just that. He calls the tongue a restless evil and goes on to say, with it, we bless our Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour Forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Ah. So, you know, here's the question for all of us. What do your lips reveal about your heart? But boys and girls, you know this well, because you, you know, if some grown-up comes up to you and says, oh, do you love your brother and sister? You say, well, of course I love my brother and sister. But then you go home and you get in a fight. And what do you say? I hate you. I wish you weren't my brother or sister. Right? I wish I had a different brother or sister. Right? Your lips suddenly articulate, reveal the anger and the hatred that's actually in your heart. They reveal the tension that exists between the two. And adults, you do the same thing. When we're in the presence of someone we want to impress, or we're in a circle of people that we hope right, to to have good relationships with, how careful are you about what you speak? And when you go home, and it's a bit quieter, a bit safer, how then do you speak of your brothers and sisters? What words do you use to communicate how you feel about things? Are you only going to a place where you then reveal a complaining and grumbling spirit, and the words you use reveal exactly what's in your heart? Well, 
in that case, then agree with Isaiah, right? The, you know, to, to, to receive God's grace is to confess and enter into the radical nature of sin. And to enter into the radical nature of sin is to say to God, yes, woe is me. I'm a really messed up, broken individual who pursues all kinds of things rather than God. And I love myself far more than I love God. And all of that detracts from and compromises and mocks his holiness. And so to enter into the holiness of God, to be approached by a holy God, woe is me. That is a scary thing. But it does not mean that there is not forgiveness, which is astonishing. The grace of God, who does not, is not required to forgive you, right? To preserve his holiness, he could simply put you to death. But instead, he goes to such great lengths that you would be made clean. And this is the salvation, right, that we see in this passage. So rather than being undone, a seraphim is sent to fly to Isaiah holding in its talon a coal from the altar and touching the lips of Isaiah. It says in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now Isaiah is incapable of cleansing himself. He's incapable of making his lips clean. And so God engages that on his behalf. Now notice, though, that the declaration of Isaiah's forgiveness is not the end of the story. Which sadly, for the vast majority of American evangelicalism, it is. Right? Our story goes, oh, we have sin. Jesus has atoned for my sin. I'm now in a great place, and I'm just going to wait until Jesus comes back. And it's not the biblical story. It's not the story of any of the heroes of the faith, and it's certainly not the story of Isaiah. Which says, oh, I've been forgiven and cleansed. My guilt has been taken away. My sin atoned for how may I participate in the extension of this grace? Understanding what he has received, participation is an inevitable result, which you see play out over and over and over again in Scripture. All right, having been cleansed, uh, God says, who will go for me? Who will I send? And Isaiah says, send me. I'll be your mouthpiece. I'll go and take your message of uh, the threat or, well, Isaiah doesn't know what he's going to speak yet, which might be a little side point. You may want to be careful what you sign up for before you know the full story. Because uh, Isaiah probably is getting not what he necessarily thought he was going to get. Isaiah says, yes, I'll go. Uh, having received salvation, let me go and be your mouthpiece. God says, great, this is the message that you're going to take. Uh, I want you to make everybody's hearts hard. I want you to make their eyes dull. I want you to make their ears deaf so that... Uh, they will not repent, and condemnation may come, and we can move the story along. This is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament, and most quoted because it will always be used to, under, to uh, interpret and understand the hardness of heart of people who do not respond to Jesus. Right? As the people are wrestling, you know, Jesus is here, God in the flesh, preaching and teaching and doing amazing things. How could people not believe? And they'll reach back and they'll quote Isaiah 6. And say that this is the result of people who double down on their sin. Grace is extended, right? But when grace is rejected, it hardens the heart more. You have to become more calloused to continue to reject increasing revelations of God's grace and mercy. That's the inevitable result for those who would choose sin rather than repentance. So Isaiah, you kind of get the notion that he's like, oh, okay, well, how long are we going to do this for? 
That's what he asks in verse 11. And then in verse 11 and 12, God says, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. God goes on from there to say, listen, I'm going to whittle down the entire land to a tenth. 90% of the people, 90% of the holiness, the holy places of the land, they're going to be done. We're going to get down to a tenth. And then you know what we're going to do? We're going to do it again. We're going to do it again until we get down to a single stump. And that stump is a sign of death, right? If you cut down a tree to the stump, you're not standing there thinking, well, great, now it's going to grow back. It's dead. And God's saying what needs to happen is Israel's going to be handed over to her sin. Assyria is going to have to come in and exile them. Everything's going to be decimated to the extent that essentially Israel will be dead. And we'll still be waiting for the one true faithful person who can stand up right, before the holiness of God and act in obedience and participate in mission even unto death. Because at the very end in verse 13, what, is, uh, what, is I, or what does God say? The holy seed is its stump. When we get down to that one stump, that sign of death, out of death I will bring life. Because there will be one true Israelite left who will finally complete the covenant and will do so in such a way that the blessings of the covenant, the new covenant, will be extended to my people and my people will be remade. And this is why John, astonishingly, you get into John's gospel, and like I said, in chapter 12, you know, they're wondering, how is it um, that people aren't believing in Jesus? And he quotes Isaiah 6, but then in 1241, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Did you catch that? John says, right, 740 years later, that Isaiah said these things in Isaiah 6 because in the midst of seeing the vision of God in the temple, he actually saw Jesus. He saw him. He saw the glory that was coming and the mercy that was about to be unleashed. And as a result, John then could speak, or Isaiah could then speak these things, right? The notion that Israel can be hardened and through that hardening will come death and through that death will come life. Isaiah begins to understand what it means that the king will come, the Messiah will arrive. And of course, Jesus fulfills that expectation. He values things rightly. He stands before God's holiness. He participates in mission unto death. And as a result, right, participates in the redemption of the world. But we said, what does it mean then for us to wait? As Isaiah is waiting... And waiting in a state that's kind of hopeless and darker than where we get to wait. We get to see the fulfillment of what Isaiah was looking forward to. But as he sees the vision of God revealed, he has two responses. The first response is, woe is me. Right? Before a holy God, I have to take my sin very seriously. His second response, right, as a result of his cleansing, as a result of his sin being taken away and his guilt being taken away, he says, here am I. Send me. So what does it mean for us to wait faithfully for the second coming of the king? Well, as we have seen the holiness of God incarnate and we celebrate it, how can we not but say, woe is me? You know there's brokenness in your heart. You know there's hatred and there's contempt 
and you love yourself more than God, and on a regular basis, we need to say before that holiness, woe is me. And if you don't feel that woe is me, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if that's just strange to you, then perhaps you really don't know anything about the holiness of God. Because the inevitable result of dwelling appropriately on God's holiness is to say, woe is me. But then also, like Isaiah, to realize that your sin and guilt is taken away not by a coal burning from a fire, but by the blood of Jesus. That you have been cleansed and loved and redeemed. And as a result of that, the second response is just as necessary. Here am I. Send me. I have received something that is of incomparable wealth in my redemption. You know what? My life may go up and down. I may have seasons in the desert. I may have seasons on the mountains. But every big and enormous and really important question has been answered. And when this brevity of life blows away like a candle being blown out, I know that all things are secure. So having received that, how can I not participate and free myself up to invest in its extension to others? This is what it is to wait for the king. To be willing to say both woe is me, but not to be undone because of the cleansing that occurs. The cleansing that indeed we celebrate at this table. And as a result of the cleansing, we say together, here am I, send me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we delight today to call you king and to worship you as king. And we thank you that when all hope was but lost, that the forest was decimated and alone stood a stump, out of this stump you came. You came and redeemed the entire project. You came and made sure that that stump would turn again into a forest. Out of death you have brought life. And we give you thanks for our redemption. Would you please meet us at this table this morning? Would you encourage our hearts? Would you fill our hearts with faith? And would you help us to both, as we come to this table, uh, know the freedom of saying, woe is me, and not pretending that we're more than we're not. And at the same time, to have reckless joy and say, here am I, send me. And may you receive both confessions and send us out in a way that glorifies your kingship and extends your kingdom. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.